All right, let's begin with prayer. Good morning to all of you. Good to see you. Father, in your mercy, I pray that you will bless our time this morning um, in the book of Hosea. And I pray that you'll give us a sense, Lord, of both the magnitude of the problem and the even greater magnitude of your grace toward your people. And I pray for those who are here to listen and for the one who's teaching this morning that you'll give clarity all around and um, and we'll thank you in in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on in, find seats. Um, So we're in the Minor Prophets. I'm going to try to stay on script today. Uh, Last week I chased every rabbit possible. Um, And so today I'm going to try to do better. I want to, we're going to stay in Hosea today for the whole morning, and then maybe we'll leave some time for Q&A at the end, but I realize that we're already pressed for time. Um, so when you look at the minor prophets as a whole, if, if I, I kind of wish I had a blackboard here but or some board, and, and we were to write them out, Hosea to Malak, you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, then all the way through to Malachi. If you were to look at the twelve, and to try to make some sense of how they're put together, um, there are a couple of things that come to the fore. Number one, there is a rough chronology at play. Now, I will say it's rough because it actually goes against our instincts at certain points chronologically, but there is a rough chronology. We begin with Hosea and Amos and Obadiah and um, Micah in the first six books. Those are all pre-exilic prophets. So if you think about um, Old Testament history and the way in which the Bible portrays its history, there are some big moments in Israel's history. A big moment would be, of course, the Exodus. That's the defining salvific move of God toward His people that gives shape and scope to everything really in the Old Testament. That's why when God reveals His name in Exodus chapter 3, Um, That is a revealing of his character. It's not necessarily that people didn't know that name Yahweh before, but they didn't necessarily know the significance of that name as it pertains to God's redemption of his people. The Exodus account reveals God in a unique and special way that becomes paradigmatic for the rest of the Bible, especially the Minor Prophets, actually. So that's a big one. The anointing of Saul as a king um, is a big moment in Israel's history. And and the pinnacle moment would be the anointing of David as king. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. I will make you, David, give you your throne in Judah, and you will be king. There will be a a Davidic king on your throne forever. That's the promise. Um, Which becomes a problem, actually, in due course. But that's, that's the promise other defining moment is when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom after Solomon's reign um, is uh, divided. The temple has now been built. Jerusalem is the central world around which the worshiping life and the political life of Israel revolves. But now there's a breakdown. Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam stays in the south. Jeroboam goes to the north. And now you have northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And that becomes a significant matter really for the rest of Old Testament history. Um, the, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom is raised by the Assyrians in 701 B.C. And then Babylon takes over the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and then Babylon destroys the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. But the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are significant matters to keep 
in our minds. You'll read terms in the Old Testament um, that will be uh, that, that just seem opaque at first, like Jezreel or Ephraim. Uh, these terms that you maybe read that you go, that doesn't immediately make sense. But those terms are terms of endearment for the northern kingdom. Ephraim. Um, Jacob. Oh, Jacob is another term that's often used in association with the northern kingdom. So if you look at the first six prophets of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, you move northern kingdom, Hosea, Joel, southern kingdom, Amos, northern kingdom, Obadiah, southern kingdom, and then Jonah, northern, and then Micah, southern. So you have a kind of interesting play there, at least in the first six books, that you move northern, southern, northern, southern, northern, and southern. But what's of equal interest in this is the distinction between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom in time becomes an opaque one. It doesn't remain. Because Hosea's prophecies that are rendered against the northern kingdom get loosened from that northern kingdom providence and make their way south, right? And so that the word that Hosea gives against the northern kingdom becomes a word that's of equal importance for the southern kingdom as well in time. In fact, in Micah chapter 1, it's a, it's a weird reference, and, and scholars debate it to this day. When it says in Micah chapter 1, verse, oh, I think 5 or 6, somewhere in there, um, her wound is incurable, and it has come unto the gates of Jerusalem. Well, what is this wound? Well, I, you know, one possibility, and I wouldn't necessarily go to the guillotine over this, but one possibility is that the wound is the wound of the northern kingdom, that once the northern kingdom gets destroyed, you have massive deportees that then move into the southern kingdom, bringing with them their religious instincts as well. And it becomes a real problem that the prophets address. So lots of interesting dynamics geopolitically, religious historically. But canonically, when we come to Hosea, Hosea takes a signal position in the twelve. And I think that's significant because if you read a standard introduction to the Old Testament, Old Testament 101 in an undergrad or maybe a seminary course, more often than not in the discussion of the minor prophets or the prophets in general, Amos will get put in the signal position with Hosea coming later. Because given the superscription in, in the first verse, Hosea 1.1, Amos 1.1, it's quite likely that Amos is an older contemporary of Hosea. So what historical critical scholars will do is then, because they're thinking historically, will move Amos to the beginning. But it's fascinating, isn't it, that in all the canonical orderings that we have, whatever one makes of these, in all the canonical orderings that we have, Hosea comes first. And I think there's a significance to Hosea's signal position because it lays out before us um, in 14 powerful chapters, right? Powerful, and I should say complicated chapters. The significance of God's relationship with His people, with the reality of sin, with the, with the breakdown in the relationship between God and His people that has come on account of this sin, and God's promise to restoration despite that reality. That's what we get in Hosea. And I want to sort of give us a big aerial view 
of the whole book this morning, starting with the first three chapters and then uh, ending really in the 14th chapter. So if you look at Hosea, go chapters 1 to 14, the first three chapters hold together, and then chapters 4 to 14 are Hosea's oracles, the, the actual prophetic words that he brings to the northern kingdom and that have been refitted as well for the southern kingdom. He brings those words. But in Hosea 1 to 3, what we have is the prophet's life actually embodying the message that he's going to bring. Now, let me step back for a second, because some of you are familiar with Hosea enough to know where this goes. It gets uncomfortable fast, right? Because there's a metaphor at play here. And the metaphor is the metaphor of marriage and the breakdown in marriage on the cause of infidelity and and adultery. That's where, where we're going. I don't, I don't know what you think, about, and I've tried to give some thought to this, and I'm really just out of the gate. Um, but this notion of metaphors or images that are used, I mean, I think there was a time um, when a metaphor was understood as really just ornamental language. You know, if you want to spice up your papers, or if you want to spice up your um, what, well, I don't know, your language. Use some metaphors and it becomes like salt and pepper. They're ornamental. But I think the, some newer work on metaphors has pressed that very simplistic notion of metaphor into another arena. And that is, metaphors actually provide for us an entry into the subject matter that we would not have without them. In other words, we need metaphors to gain access to the subject matter. Uh, one book, I've been fiddling in this book over the past few weeks, by a, a British theologian who's passed away in the early 2000s, Colin Gunton is his name, entitled The Actuality of the Atonement, um, has written this book really to show how the, how the significance of the atonement, Jesus' death and resurrection for humanity, demands multiple metaphors. To reduce it to one would be a reduction of the subject matter to really a flatlined level. Why? Because we're talking about God's redemption of humanity and God's expunging of sin and God's defeat of the devil and all of these things that are going on at the cross that demand multiple metaphors to get at this incredible subject matter. I think about it similarly with the fourfold gospel. I mean, now people lose sleep at times over the so-called problems between the Gospels. And I, I you know, you've got to wrestle with these. Did Jesus die on Thursday or Friday? Um, two temple cleansings. Did Jesus cleanse the temple at the beginning of his ministry in John's Gospel? Or did he do it later in his ministry in the Synoptic Gospels? Or do you go Augustine's route and smooth it out and say, well, he did it twice at the beginning and at the end? I mean, it's, 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 it, there are issues. Another vantage point at that, though, is... The importance of the subject matter, we're talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ, very God, very man, demands more than one gospel account, right? That's the way in which I think the tradition has understood it at its best. We need the vantage point of Matthew and the vantage point of Mark and Luke and John to gain access to the singularity, the complex and beautiful singularity of Jesus' incarnation, His death, and His resurrection. We need that. So metaphors are not just ornamental. Metaphors are powerful points of entrance into the subject matter. And it's fascinating to me that both Old Testament and New Testament 
One of God's favorite metaphors is the metaphor of marriage. Marriage. A husband and wife coming together. Think about the logic that Paul gives in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, the way in which Paul's logic seems to run there is this. God did not look down on human institutions and go, I wonder which one I should pick to be the best illustration for me about my relationship with my people. It actually seems to be the inverse. And that is marriage as itself is instituted for the purpose of being an iconic representation of what it means for God to love His people. That's why, again, if I can appeal to the tradition, it's why the tradition, by and large, both the synagogue and the church, has read the book of Song of Solomon allegorically. Because the impulse is to, given the rest of the Bible's affinity toward marriage and the marriage metaphor as really the metaphor that best describes God's relationship with His people, well, of course Song of Solomon is about Yahweh's love for Israel or Jesus' love for the church. What else could it be than that? So when we come to the book of Hosea, we're we're moving right into that metaphor. And it's a metaphor that frankly is picked up in other places as well, like Ezekiel chapter 16. Another one of those texts that frankly is just rated R, if not NC-17. I mean, it's it's bad. You know, it's the kind of thing that gives me nightmares thinking about explaining it to my kids, right? Um, here you have a young girl that's born, but she, it's an act of infanticide in Ezekiel 16. She's tossed out into the wilderness, left to die in her own afterbirth. I, 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 some of you have heard this before, but you, you know this. You're powerful. Left all alone, kicking and screaming in her own blood. That's the language of Ezekiel. And I walked by you and I said, live. I mean, that's how God describes his election of Israel in Ezekiel 16. You were a kicking baby out in the middle of the wilderness that nobody wanted. You'd been discarded by your Hittite and Canaanite mothers and fathers. But I came by and I saw you kicking and screaming and I told you to live. And you did. And then you grew up before me and you became a young woman that was now of marrying age. And now that you're that age, I married you. I took you in and made you my wife. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't just make you my wife. I made you my, my crown jewel, my prize. I mean, I, 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 I doted on you with the best of, of linens and flowers and oils, the best that money could buy. I even, and I, well, I don't even know what to do with it. I even got you porpoise skin sandals. That's what it says. Right? I mean, that's how nice it was. Louis Vuitton, ancient Near Eastern sandals, I guess. I don't know. And then the next verse, as we move on in Ezekiel 16, a long chapter, it turns on us and all of a sudden, this baby that was left to itself to die, that's now grown up to be a marriageable woman, that's been doted, not just been children, but just doted on by a loving husband, is now becoming a prostitute of the worst sort. And this is what Ezekiel says, Sodom and Gomorrah look at you and they blush, right? I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah is blushing. And he goes on to say in his invective against Israel that a normal prostitute gets paid for her services. Right? But you don't even get paid. You just do it because you want to. I mean, this is that metaphor that Ezekiel, I think, is picking up from Hosea. Because this is what God tells Hosea to do. If you have your Bibles or a phone or whatever, you can look at it. 
Hosea 1, verse 2, conscious of time here. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go get yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom, for the land will stray from, from following. Oh, well, you know, you can't even get to verse 2 without getting to massive interpretive debates, right? What does that mean, a wife of whoredom? Does it mean a wife who is already a prostitute? I mean, that, that's caused big trouble for both the Jewish and the Christian interpretive tradition. Is God telling Hosea, his prophet, to marry a prostitute? Or does it mean that it's a wife who in time will turn toward prostitution? Is that what is going on here? One of the big, big questions. Um, I think better for us than resolving that kind of conundrum. And by the way, both within the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, you have people who land all over the map on that. But I think what's better is to keep before us, this is a symbolic action, right? It's a symbolic action. And the symbolism of it is frankly more important than figuring out the historical conundrums, right? That's more important. The symbolism is what is important. And we shouldn't be surprised to see the prophet bearing in his own body the call that God has put onto them. Isaiah is walking around naked, right? As a part of his prophetic embodying. Weird stuff, right? I mean, I have a colleague, Alan Ross, um, who, who's apparently well known for saying that if you're in temple, right, in, uh, on, the, on Shabbat in Jerusalem around the 8th century um, or the 7th century, whenever, and a prophet walks in, seatbelts on, right? In other words, the priests are doing their duty, but when the prophets walk in, it's like this, this could get to be a... Or the priest would go, this is going to be a bad day, right? It's going to be a bad day, right? So here the prophet comes, he embodies, think about Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 4, lie on your side for hundreds of days, and then when you're done, go on your other side and lie on your side because you're bearing the weight of Israel's sin. So we see that Jeremiah is walking around with irons as he has been um, imprisoned for the word that he is bringing, and Jeremiah being bound, the prophet, is a symbolic reality of the Word of God being bound. right? So, I mean, the prophets embody in themselves this Word. And here it goes for Hosea. Go and marry a woman. And whether or not she's already a prostitute or will become one, I tend to like that one, but if, whatever it is, your marriage is going to go bad. right? And it's going to go bad because my marriage has gone bad. And that's the major point. You go and marry a Gomer, right? And you marry her, and your marriage is going to go bad. I mean, what a heavy call. I mean, I and again, my instinct is to want to psychologize that, but I, you know, in other words, kind of get into the psyche and the emotion of Hosea. We, I just think we need to resist it, right? because that's, again, Hosea's psychological realities aren't as important as the symbolic reality that's going on. And then he has children. So he does this. He marries Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam. She conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord instructed him, Name him Jezreel, for I will soon punish the house of Jehu. Now, this is quite likely revealing um, the situation in Jezreel in the northern kingdom where uh, one of the kings was overthrown by a coup d'etat. It was a bloody overthrow, and it was a symbolic reality, a symbolic action that indicated of the northern kingdom's guilt. So here, name them Jezreel, Name them, I don't, what would be a good example? I mean, maybe in our context it would be, name your firstborn bankruptcy. Right. Or uh, name your firstborn tax evasion. You know, something, here's a name that actually is ta attached to 
the shame of their sinful ways. So name, name your firstborn tax evasion. That's a strange sort of a manuscript from the Dead Sea that has that uh, option there. Joke, that's, that's not true. Um, <laughs> so she conceived then and bore a daughter. And he said to him, name her. Here's another top. You're not going to see this in the top ten name list from 2014. Name her Loruchamah. Which means really just straightforwardly, no mercy. And after weaning Loruchama, she conceived and she bore another son. And then he said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. That right, that's the, um, that verse to me is the, uh, the hackle-raising, hair-raising, goosebump verse of chapter 1. Name your last child, Lo-Ami, not my people. For I, and, and Are you familiar with this phrase? For I will not be your God and you will not be my people. That is a reversal of the standard covenantal formula that God has made with His people. It's all over Exodus, all over Deuteronomy. You walk in this way, and I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the covenant formula. And what you have in Hosea, both through Hosea's marriage and the naming of his children, are these living realities set before us that God is overturning his own covenant relationship with his people. Not my people. This, remember this conversation that God had with Moses in Exodus chapter 33, I believe it is? Um, go down to this people. Right? That, 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 those pronouns make me nervous. This people? I don't know if you remember what Mo- Moses' prayer is when he intercedes and then God relents. Moses' prayer is, oh, by the way, they're your people. <laughs> right? He's reminding them, they're not, they're not this people, they're your people. And he tells Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, go and tell this people. Whereas when you get to Isaiah chapter 40, you can hear Handel's Messiah here, can't you? Comfort, comfort my people. So this low omni, this not my people, gets at the heart of the overturn of the relationship. And now we get into chapter 2. I think Hosea 2 is worth our next four weeks, really. Here we have, in, I'm just going to give you an outline of it. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we have revival and restoration promised. It's anticipated. In, chapter, in verses 4 through 15, we have the trial for the wife's or the mother's apostasy. And then in verses 16 to 22, we have the renewal again. It's beautifully set up from a literary standpoint. It's sandwiched. It's enveloped, right? It's bookended. At the beginning of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 2, you have God's promise of restoration and renewal. And what I, I mean, I, I mean, again, this may be reading in, but you know, allow me a little hyperbole here. But what I like about chapter two is it's going to get real hard in the middle section. Hard words are going to be said, but it's as if the prophet. Let's even push it back further. It's as if God wants to say, "But bef- I want you to know, my primary motivation for all of this, right, is your renewal." I mean, it's something, and this is this. I'm again, these these things have been pressing on me. In recent study, I mean, it's hard not to read the prophets and get a little kind, you know, downtrodden. It's, it's, it's a, it, these are hard words. Um, but it's a good reminder to me to recognize that even in God's acts of judgment, 
He's doing these acts of judgment with mercy as his final aim. That's where we're going in this thing, is toward mercy. So look how he begins. Um, verse 1, the number of the people of Israel shall be like the sands of the sea. Does that sound familiar? Right out of Exodus, I mean out of Genesis, uh, which cannot be measured or counted. And instead of being told, you are not my people, you are lo ami, they shall be called the children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel shall assemble together and appoint one head over them. And they shall rise from the ground, for marvelous shall be the day of Jezreel. Do you see what's happening here? It's the reversal of the undoing of the covenant in chapter 1 is now being reversed here. You're not going to be low on me anymore. You're going to be children of the living God. You're no longer going to be Jezreel as a bad word. You're going to be Jezreel as a positive word. Oh, and call your brothers my people, uh, me. And your sisters, and it doesn't really come across real well here, but your sisters, Ruchama, mercy. So you have the overturning of the names in chapter 1. I mean, the, the names are now overturned that we saw in chapter 1. But then we get to the rebuke in verse 4. Oh, this is heavy. Let's read it. It's fun. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. So who's he talking to here? He's talking to the children. For she is not my wife, I am not her husband. But let her put away from herself her harlotry and her adultery from between her breasts. Else will I strip her naked and leave her as on the day she was born. And I will make her like a wilderness, render her like desert land, and let her die of thirst. I will disown her children, for they are now a harlot's brood. And that their mother has played the harlot, she thought... She that conceived them has acted shamelessly because she thought I will go after my lovers who, who supply my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Assuredly, I will hedge up her roads with thorns and raise walls against her. Pursue her lovers as she will. She shall not overtake them and seek them as she may. She shall never find them. And then she will say, here's the prodigal son verse. I will go and return to my first husband, for then I fared better than now. Well, I won't read the rest of it, but it goes on in the same sort of vein. This is, this is the charge. This is the call. It's the prophetic call. It's the call that really is the title of our whole series. Return. Return to the Lord. Go to your mother and tell her what's going on, but tell her to return. And when does she say that she'll return? When she hits rock bottom, when she's pursuing headlong after her lovers and she realizes that it's no longer available for her anymore, then she, I mean, it's amazing. I, I thought about this as I was preparing for this. I've not seen any parallel connections made. I'm going to be careful not to press it too hard, but parallel connections made between this and the prodigal son. But this is a prodigal moment. She comes to her senses. She says, it was better for me with my first husband. Right. I'm going to go back to him now. Assuredly, verse 16, here's the renewal. I will speak coaxingly to her. I'll lead her through the wilderness. I'm going to speak to her tenderly. I'll give her vineyards from there. And the valley of Echor, which is the valley of depression, the valley of hopelessness, will now be called the plow land of hope. And there she will respond as in the days of her youth. Verse 19, I will remove the names of the Balim, those are the bad gods, from her mouth. They shall never be mentioned by name anymore. 
And it goes on to say here that eventually she will say to him, you are my husband, not my husband. Which is kind of funny in English, right? But what it means is the, the Hebrew word Baal can be used for both husband and it can also be used for the Canaanite god Baal, right? So here he's saying, you will no longer say my Baal, but you will say my man, my husband, which is a play on their, their idolatry. This is a powerful section here. A powerful section that reveals to us something about the character of God to move toward His people whenever they turn toward Him in repentance. That's the big message here. When the prodigal son, or, the, or, or Hosea's terms, when the prodigal harlot, right, which is all of us. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Or you look at this and go, there, there's our lives, right, on full display. When the prodigal turns back to the father, the Father's instinct by His very character, by who He is, that allows us to pick Him out and say, that's our God, runs off the porch and meets the one, the penitent, that's coming home. If I can do an aside here, it's why I love our liturgy. right? Do you realize this about our liturgy? We get to do it every week together. I mean, every week, we come into contact with this reality acknowledging who we are, bewailing our manifold sins. We use this inflated in English, right? But you know what it is? Bewailing our manifold sins. Whose sins? Our sins. My sins. Coming again to say, Lord, have mercy. Kyrie eleison. And we get to, every Sunday together, corporately and individually, we get to do this, to embody this in our liturgy together, to come clean before God with who we really are. To run toward Him, knowing that He meets us again and again with His mercy. Go forth in love to serve the Lord. And that's a freedom of peace to go out and to do it. And guess where we're going to be next Sunday? In the same place, going through the ritual and the liturgy again. You know why? Because that's our lives. Right? That's what we need. Well, can, can we turn to Hosea 14? Oh, the time. Um, interesting side note here as you're turning. Hosea chapter 14 in the synagogue liturgical tradition is read on the de- on the Sunday before Yom Kippur. Right? So the Sunday before the Day of the Atonement, this particular um, uh, text is read. Hosea chapter 14. I'm just going to read it. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have fallen because of your sin. Take words with you. Again, I'm going to come back to our liturgy here in a second. Return. Shoo. Go back to Israel. Why? Because of your sin. And what does the going back look like? It's a great theological text here. What does it look like? It looks like when you go, by the way, take some words with you. Again, again, just illustratively. What does the prodigal son take with him when he goes back to the father? He doesn't have anything else to take. He's spent everything wantonly. He's got nothing to his name anymore. But what does he take? He take What's that? He takes a plan. That's exactly right. He takes his words. He's got a speech. And he's ready to have a conversation with his father, which he gets cuts off, by the way. Right? But he's got words that he's taking. Take words with you and return to the Lord. And now, at the end of verse 3, we get to see what those words are. Say to him, when you return to the Lord, forgive all guilt, except what is good. Instead of bulls, we will pay with the fruit of our lips, the offering of our lips. Assyria is not going to save us. 
No, no nation is going to save us. You will save us. Um, Michael Fishbane in his commentary in this section says that the repentance here involves four elements. The recognition of sin and its consequences. Repentance, number two, a turning back. Confession and appeal to mercy. And a rejection of past practices and the decision not to engage in them again. Bring words with you. Verse 3, when it says, forgive us our sins. Here's the a little Hebrew for the morning. The term is nasa avon. And I tell my Hebrew students when they're trying to learn some of this vocabulary, NASA, think about NASA, right? It's like a ship taking off that needs to lift off. It's lifting. As, the, as Moses, NASA, lifted up, right? The mo, the, the, so this is lifting up. So here you see that forgiveness is a lifting up of our debt, of our avon, of our sin. Sin is a weight in the Old Testament that has to be borne. And what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the lifting of it off of us. Take that weight off of us. That's why when you come to Isaiah 53, the last verse, what is he doing? He's nasaing our avon, our pasha, there's our rebellion. He's lifting it off. He bore it on himself so that it would no longer weigh us down anymore. So what are the words that we come, we bring when we come back to the Lord? Would you please lift it off of us? I spent the last two weeks writing, I'm done. I spent the last two weeks um, writing a little thing on the atonement and the major prophets. And I haven't really, I mean, it, it was good for me to be, it's not something I would have chosen to do, but it's been good for me to think through it. When you think about God's forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament, he does it in three ways. Number one, within the priestly context of the Bible, he does it through the ritual means of sacrifice, right? Number two, he does it through vicarious representation. Somebody representing the guilty in their place. Isaiah 53 would be exhibit A of that. Complex text, but nevertheless, Isaiah 53 does that. And then the third way is that God unilaterally forgives no matter what. Because of His own kindness, His own goodness, no means, no representation, no ritual, no nothing. He just forgives. Remember Ezekiel 16? You're lying in your blood, kicking and screaming about you know what's amazing about Ezekiel 16? Why that text is, I think, just has its teeth sunk into me and always will. Because it ends this way. And when I make atonement for you, one of the few times in the prophets that term is used, when I make atonement for all your sins, then you will be ashamed and then you will be humble before me. That's a reversal of the normal move. The normal move is we repent, we're shameful, we recognize that we're sinful, and we go to and flee to the cross, right? But there's another aspect of it as well. It's quite powerful. That is, the, God's actual gifts of grace to us then enable us to see how needy and desperate we are. What was it that Paul said in Romans chapter 2? It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. That's why I wanted to close today. And we'll, I'm sorry, maybe we'll have time for one question. But the third verse, I love this verse of, um, of, the, of the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Here's the third verse. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I think that's where Hosea and Ezekiel, and Isaiah, and the prophets in mass would stand up and say, Amen. Right? 
If you're going to wait till you're better, then you're never going to come. But why don't you come right now? And when you come, then we recognize who we really are in the acknowledgement of our sin and in the recognition of, our, of His grace. And if I can come full circle, and that's what we get to do in our liturgy every week. See who we really are. The mask comes off. And to see who He really is. So that, like Paul, if we're going to boast about anything with one another, right? If we're going to sort of roll up our sleeves to show our uh, self-affirmation and whatever it is, it's going to be a boasting in the Lord. If we're going to really raise something up, we're going to say, you're not going to believe this. But um, we're sinners and we've been, we've been given grace. Okay, I have time for one question. Anybody want to fire one out? Yes, ma'am. I have a curious you know, interestingly enough, I'm reading this morning from the New Jerusalem Translation. I mean, from the New Jewish Publication Society one. It's just a rendering of the Hebrew, lo ruchami, no mercy. Yeah, so both of those are fair renderings. Yeah. All right, go get your children, those of you who have kids around. <laughs>